Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 122. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, a brand new guest, Mr. Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Marcus, how are you doing? Man, I am so good. Thank you so much for having me today, Steve. I'm excited about this. And uh, even what we were talking about before, we probably should have just hit record from the minute that we got online. <laughs> that happens a lot where when we get on a call with someone and we're about to hit record, you know, we make some small talk and we talk about how the structure of the show works. And before you know it, we've spent 30 minutes having an awesome conversation that unfortunately is now lost to time because we weren't <laughs> recording. So I'm always trying to get into the habit now of pressing that big red button as soon as possible so I can capture the magic before we lose it. It's never the same if you have have to repeat yourself. There's something so powerful about the spontaneity of the first time you say something. It's hard to regurgitate something and bring the same meaning again. It absolutely is. And I did the same thing with Emily whenever she was on. It was the same thing. I should have just hit record immediately because there were so many you know, powerful concepts. And then, as you say, to try to revisit it, it's, it's sort of hard to unring the bell once you've already been there. So, Well, let me maybe kick this off with a bit of an introduction. Marcus, why don't you tell the listeners who you are and where your work is? Absolutely. My name is Marcus Aurelius Anderson. I'm a TEDx speaker, international keynote speaker, best-selling author of the book, The Gift of Adversity. And I work as a coach, a peak performance coach for leaders, CEOs, high performers in every capacity, athletes. And the thing that I find so often is a lot of these people kind of get stuck in the same traps over and over again. And because they're not able to see them or they have no way to be objective within that, it's hard for them to see it. So I always tell them that emotions assassinate the truth. So whether it be in business, whether it be in peak performance, whether it be in a relationship with somebody else or yourself, until we're able to really step back, take a breath, pause and reflect, even like in jujitsu, it's impossible to really know what's going on until you've been able to do that. And that's what I do. And this is what allows people to take businesses to, you know, from six to seven figures, seven to eight figures, or peak performers to reach that next level. And at that highest level, even one or 2% increases is enough to separate them from victory and success or, you know, being good and then being truly elite. Mm -hmm. And that ties into something we were talking about earlier that we wanted to make the crux of this conversation, and that is the 80-20 rule, officially known as the Pareto Principle. It's something we've talked about on the show quite a bit in the past, and it's something that has been extraordinarily handy for me as a decision-making tool. And you brought up how making key decisions and making them well is such an important part of success, especially at world-class levels. 
the 80-20 rule, although, you know, it's not really a rule in that it, it doesn't apply all the time, but it's a very handy tool for assessing what the big wins are going to be in any particular context. Something that I believe is, you know, more is not better, better is better. And sometimes we get into this trap of thinking, well, I just need to do more or I need to work harder. But a lot of the time, the opposite is actually true. And paring down the things that are not productive and focusing on the things that really are is it can be the difference maker. And that is basically the the core tenet behind the 80-20 rule. So, Marcus, maybe you can introduce this to the audience in your words. Absolutely. The Prado, when he talked about this, what he had done is he was a, a scientist, he was a biologist. So he noticed that the peas that were in his basically the ones that he was trying to raise, about 20% of the peas would create 80% of the output. And then he actually looked at landowners in that country at that time, and it was very similar how how close those things were. And so he started looking at this idea of essentially as quality over quantity, much like what you were alluding to when you were making the comment earlier. So whether it be this idea of you can hit the arm bar in 80% of your positions or the choke or this sweep or this position works most of the time, that's the kind of way to look at it. But I feel what happens is people especially in my space of of my profession, a lot of people want to try to absorb all these different tools, but they don't want to actually apply it or they don't want to apply it deeply enough. And therefore, because they don't actually put it into everything or they don't go beyond the mere superficial aspect of it, they don't get the most out of it. And then that's, those are the people that if you said, hey, have you heard of the 80-20 rule? They're like, yeah, I tried that, but this, this, and this. Yeah, absolutely. But chances are they weren't really applying it to the degree that they should have. I Even before we hit record, I mentioned that, that Bruce Lee analogy. And Bruce Lee said famously, I don't fear the man that knows 10,000 kicks and does them one time. I fear the man that knows one kick and has practiced it 10,000 times. So if you can take 80-20 and apply it to your business, your productivity, your personal development, your physical development, your spirituality, your meditation, those are the ways that you have to take it and then ask yourself, if this was the only tool that I had, how could I apply it? And then how could I be even more specific with it and use it more efficiently? It's not a hammer, guys. It's a surgical instrument and it should be applied as such. And much like a surgical instrument, if you want to use it properly, the 80-20 rule is really good at identifying the things that you should cut out. That's actually one of the most powerful aspects of the tool. I think everyone has probably heard that, you know, the old wisdom that saying no is often more important than saying yes, because saying no is all about focus, right? It's about removing the things from your life that distract you from your goals. And the 80-20 rule is a powerful way to do that in practice. And, you know, a common business example of the 80-20 rule for a lot of businesses, it is the case that 20% of their customers generate 80% of the revenue, right? This is not that uncommon. You might have some super customers who basically float the whole business and then a whole bunch of little guys that wind up actually costing you money or breaking even if you're lucky. And at some point, any business that has achieved a modicum of success has to start looking at profitability and looking at their customer base and trying to figure out, okay, who do we need to really focus on? Because more is not necessarily better. Like you can have a million customers that are all paying you, you know, a hundred bucks a month, but if it's costing you 200 bucks a month to serve every one of those customers, more is not necessarily better. So a good activity for any business is to do that kind of profitability analysis and see if you can isolate 
the 20% of the customers that are really moving the needle for you and then get more of those, right? And in the world of martial arts, you brought up that awesome Bruce Lee quote. In judo, this concept is actually canonized right into the arts. Judo has this concept uh, that they call the Takui Waza or your Mm -hmm. favored technique. And the idea is that most high-level judoka, they're not going to be good at all 67 throws. In reality, most of them are going to be good at a handful of them, maybe two or three. But what they're really good at is getting people into that game where they can apply their technique. So you don't need to be great at everything. You just need to be great at one thing and make sure that you can cultivate an environment that always drives the situation back to that one thing, right? It's it's okay if you're not great at certain aspects of the game, as long as you're good at steering people back to the aspect that you are good at. That's absolutely it. We see, you know, the the half guard trend that went on a long time ago where the rubber guard are all these ideas where that's what the people would try to get into. They would try to get into this thing and be the next, you know, Eddie Bravo. But that was the great example of how he didn't have to know all these other things. He was already a black belt, so he already knew all these other techniques, but there was the one niche that he truly owned. And I recently had the pleasure of interviewing a guy named Christopher Lockhead. And Christopher Lockhead is a brilliant marketing genius. And his idea was to embrace your different, find the thing that you do differently and get to that place. And his concept, and he did this the same thing, almost like the Pareto principle. That's why I'm trying to tie it in. Is he says that if you own a niche, if you create something that nobody else has seen before, even if it's not great, and even if it's not at the price that it should be, if you own that market, if you were the first one in that market, the rest of the people that come in, even if they have a better product, even if they have better service, even if it's less expensive, they will fight for one quarter of that pie and you will still maintain three quarters of the profitability within that. And that's simply because you own that market so much because when people see that, they think, oh, this is the McDonald's of of this, or this is the Bud Light of whatever this is. Mm-hmm. That's the way that you look at it. So again, his idea was, I don't want to own more. I want to do something better. You mentioned that thing about the the judo throws. My instructor, my my Jeet Kune Do instructor's named Guru Dana Nosanto. He's Bruce Lee's protege, and he's used that same analogy when he was teaching us. And he said the judoka they know these throws, these these handful of throws. But he says they are aware of the other throws. They are aware, one, so that they have a potential transition, but also so that they do not become a victim of them in the process. So by having that 80-20 rule, it helps you be very specific about what you're trying to get good at, but it also helps you see that there are other areas that by doing this effectively, it can protect you from these other things that you may not be aware of. And that's in martial arts, the thing that knocks you out, the punch that knocks you out is the one that you don't see coming. So by creating that that situational awareness, if you will, is a good way to apply that 80-20 principle as well. Yeah. Something that's important to understand about the 80-20 rule is that for the 80% of the stuff that you're identifying as out of focus, it's not that you're ignorant of that stuff. You still need to understand it. It's just that it's not your focus. An example in jujitsu, right? For the barambolo, it's not a technique I'm good at. I'm not even sure I could drill it. But if someone tries to do it on me, I know how to counter it. That's exactly it. There's even this idea of understanding... I. I talk about in my book, this concept of the Machiavellian and how the pejorative has a very negative connotation. But the idea is you read The Prince by Machiavelli or you read The Art of War by Sun Tzu, because, not because you want to necessarily 
be that person to somebody else, not because you are going to be just ruthless and and try to destroy everyone in your path with this scorched earth mentality, but you have to be aware of those things because if you're not, even if you and I are both just people, that doesn't mean that the people that we're fighting on the street or in business even, that doesn't mean that they're going to play by the same rules. So we have to at least be aware of them. So like you said, we don't get victimized by it. And to take it on a higher level as a CEO, a CEO or the person who is the founder of a company, they literally hire out people to do those other 80% of the things that they don't do. That's why they have a CFO. That's why they have a COO. That's why they have sales. That's why they have distribution because their job is to focus on that 20%. And many times that 20% is the vision. That 20% is looking above. That 20% is creating that leadership capital to raise everyone to a higher level so that they can go where he sees they want to be in one, two, three, five years. And that's how we have to look at it. Well, that's something that... I think is lost on a lot of people when they're trying to increase performance, our intuitive idea when it comes to how we should become better performers is, well, I should patch up my weaknesses, right? Like ideally it would be great if I knew everything. So people will often be very, very focused on identifying the areas that they're not so great at and trying to get better at those. The challenge to doing that though, is just due to the way that your time is divided, you'll wind up being average at everything, right? Maybe even subpar at everything. Whereas top performers know what their strengths are. They know how to invest in those strengths and leverage those strengths. And they also know how to play defense around their weaknesses. And one of the best ways to do that is by expanding your team. So if there are areas of business that you're not particularly strong at, you would find someone who is, and then they can cover that role. And it creates this team dynamic relationship where everyone has a role to play, right? It's like Ocean's Eleven. Everyone on the team is a specialist in their area. And the team as a whole wouldn't work without all of those people. They all have something they're really, really good at, and the rest of the team relies on them to do that one thing. So that's kind of a a weird counterintuitive thing. It's not always about patching up your weaknesses and being okay at everything. It's about focusing on the things that you're actually good at. That's absolutely it. And even as you're mentioning this idea of a team or even a competitor, like the Ocean's Eleven analogy, every single person knew what the mission was. Every single person knew what the goal was. Everybody knew what the timeline was. So there was a metric, there was a specific outcome they were trying to get to. And that's what you have to have as a person, whether it be in jujitsu or business. If you're stepping onto the mat in jujitsu, your goal should be to step off a better fighter every single time. If you're having a conversation, if you're coaching somebody, your goal is to make that person better, thereby making me better. The same thing with the business. Every time you touch an employee in a conversation, whether it be in Zoom or an email, you should be getting them closer to what you want them to have because the reality is with each interaction, you either get them closer or further away. There's no middle ground. And so that's why the importance of that 80-20 is so, so paramount. That's why understanding it on a very deep level is so important. And frankly, Josh Waitzkin talks about this, Emily Quark's, you know, mentor, and also Tim Ferriss, obviously. We have very little time that we can have quality-focused mentality when it comes to these things. So as soon as you wake up in the morning, the time is ticking, and you have only a certain amount of units of mental energy that can be applied to the best of your potential. So if you're training for a competition at 9 p.m. at night and you're already tired because you've had a rough day, Chances are you're not going to compete nearly as well as if you were able to carve out 
say that that training session in the morning at 7:30 with somebody who comes in early with you and works on drills or or rolls or does situational rolling or conditioning with you to give you that very specific 80/20 concept. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's actually a really really good idea. And it never really occurred to me to apply 80/20 to time management and to personal energy levels because everyone kind of peaks differently, right? I mean, for me, I actually have terribly low energy during the mornings, but during the night, that's when I get a lot of my energy. And so I think that learning when you are most effective and operating in those environments is ideal. I mean, we live in a world now where, you know, a lot of the popular wisdom involves hustling and that sounds very attractive, (laughs) right? Hard work sounds awesome, but Hard work in itself, I think we fetishize it a bit too much, right? I'm not impressed by someone who brags about how they work 20 hours a day to get a job done if I could get that job done in five hours, right? No one cares how much time you put in. What people care about is what you put out. And if you're spending the same amount of time to achieve what other people are doing in a far lesser amount of time, that's not something to brag about. That's just being inefficient, right? Like if I can optimize my time so that I can get done in a quarter of a day what takes most people a whole day. That's far, far, far better because now I have all of that extra time to devote to other activities. And, you know, time is a finite resource that you can't buy more of, right? You can get more money, you can get more assets, but you can't get more time. And so it's very important that we optimize how we spend our time and not just try to throw more time at a problem. That's kind of like throwing more money at a problem, but even worse. Yeah. And that's something that I, I work with my my clients with. And if if you'll allow me, I'd like to give you the three steps that I give them. And this is the mental default setting that I, I like to give them. The very first thing that they have to have is they have to have a very specific list of goals, or I call it a power list because that's what Andy Frisella calls it in the Arte Syndicate. But it's just basically about having two or three things that are the primary objectives for that day. So when I talk to my clients, if I say that everything is a priority, then nothing is a priority. So by focusing on the two or three things that really move the needle, that's what you should be getting done. That's the very first thing. That's number one. And you should have that already figured out the evening before or before you step on the mat or before you pick up your your phone for your emails. Number two, the second thing you should be asking yourself right now is what I just alluded to earlier, is what I'm doing right now in this moment getting me closer or further away? So if you find yourself on social media for only 10 minutes, but we both know that turns into 30 minutes, now you've lost momentum. Now you've lost 30 minutes of work, but now you're probably losing even more because now you have to get refocused and get back into the same gear that you were before you got distracted by the phone. So that takes a lot of your time away. So understanding if what you're doing is getting you closer or further away. And if it's not, don't beat yourself up. Just stop and pivot immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also, you know, I'm a fan of making sure that I take the time that I need to rejuvenate myself. I don't mind wasting a bit of time here and there to relax as long as it's intentional, right? And however you relax, you know, make sure that you're enjoying it. You're doing what you want to do. And if what you get a kick out of is using your phone, whatever, but it's a matter of making sure that that's done intentionally, right? And and not bleeding into the time that you need to spend being productive. And in fact, even when I am on my phone, like a lot of the time, I'm trying to do things that actually will help in the long run. Like I'm trying to engage the the BJJ Mental Models community, or I'm trying to connect with people who might be good guests for the podcast, that kind of stuff. So I really like the point you brought up from Tim Ferriss and Josh Waitskin about making sure that everything you do 
is always done in an effort to make things better because it's very easy to get trapped in this cycle of status quo and you're doing things for maintenance purposes, you know, because you need to feed the machine to make things move. But you do that and you wind up basically treading water. And yes, it's important to do operational things, but we also need to make sure that we are investing in the future and that we're doing things that will make us better positioned next month than we are this month. And it's very easy to fall into this hamster wheel where you're just doing things to keep where you are. Like, you know, you're continuously moving in place and it takes a good amount of deliberate focus to figure out what things need to be done to actually improve yourself. And that's one of the areas where the 80-20 rule is really powerful. Absolutely. And just like you said, if we don't do that, if we're not intentional, if we don't pay attention to our intention, then we will continually be in treading water and we're always going to be stuck in that same place. We're running to stand still effectively. Another component with that, the the third step that I, I tell people is to be present. So that's exactly what you're talking about, about this quality of attention, about what you're trying to do. And there's even components as well where some of these peak performers These are the people that are driven. These are the people that I have to rein back more than I have to spur on. So for them, it's about this understanding of why they're doing what they're doing. And that comes from deep self-knowledge. That comes from a very deep place of not trying to say, what's my why? Because if you don't know yourself, if you don't know what's truly important to you, then other people can give you a why that you may chase after or may give you something that sounds good, but in the end, it may not be exactly what's deep inside you. And so that's why I think that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu martial arts in general are so important because they help you quickly ascertain who you are, what you are, and more importantly, what you're not. When adversity comes and hits you in the face and punches you in the mouth, it's not trying to tell you what you are. It's stripping away all the stuff that you are not getting down to the bare bones of what you are. And from that place, you can begin to reflect. You can begin that self-knowledge and you can begin to learn. And that's why I think martial arts are a great place to start. Getting beaten is the best way to begin to win. Just to recap that, what were those three steps again? Absolutely. I apologize. So the first step is to have a power list specifically of what you want for that day. Number two is to ask yourself if what I'm doing right now is getting me closer or further away. And if it's not getting you closer, then pivot immediately and re-engage in number one, the things that you should be getting done in that day. And then number three should be to be completely present. And to expand on the third one, here's what we were talking about. You were mentioning how people will work sometimes, you know, 60, 80 hours a week. And I had CEOs that would do that, but this is what would happen. They would be at work. And then when they're at work, they feel badly that they're not with their family. So by thinking about their family or by wondering about their family or by being distracted from their work, it makes them have to stay at work longer. Invariably, this is what happens though. When they come home and they get to spend time with their family, if they're watching TV or they're just kind of wasting time, even though that's actually what they need to recover, there's a part of them in the back of their mind that's like, I wonder if I should be checking up on this email. I wonder if I should pick up my phone. I wonder what if there's a message on Slack about this product or about the service or about this customer. So what they end up doing is they rob themselves of the beauty and the presence of being home with their family, which is why they're working in the first place. And then when they're at work, they're not able to get everything done. But if you are more efficient, if you are more conscious, if you are more present at work, Magically, their hours have to go down. Now they're only working, they're working 20 hours less than they were, which allows them to be at work and be more effective. And then when they get to come home, 
they can breathe, they can be with their family, they can be present. And that's the whole reason why they're working in the first place. So again, quality over quantity. This is where 80-20 can truly change your life. You know, this is something that I think we all struggle with now. And that is the fact that we live in a very push-based culture. Notifications are going off on your phone all the time. You know, your attention is being controlled by others. You're constantly getting bombarded with messages and there's this feeling of obligation to respond. Cal Newport actually just put out a new book on this. I just started listening to it last night on Audible called A World Without Email. And I think that very nicely touches on this problem of how we live in a society now where there are constant distractions trying to pull our attention away. And small things like turning off the notifications on your phone and not checking email, making the commitment to not check email or social media during certain times of the day, make a tremendous difference to your well-being. When I started doing that, when I decided I would have blackout periods for my email, for example, it completely changed my relationship with my phone. It absolutely will. And it's about that commitment. It's about being intentional about what you want to get done. So even what we're talking about now, that idea of blocking out time that you're not going to pick up your phone or you're not going to check your email, that's your 80-20. You're saying, listen, I'm going to work on this from you know, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. And then after that, I, I can't get on this. I have a call. I, I'm doing a class, whatever it is. And then you pick it back up. And what you'll find is this. It allows you to get more done in less time because you're much more intentional about that time. When I talk to my clients, there's something else that I do. I call it intellectual sprinting. And I have them work for 45 minutes as hard as they can on a, on a project. And then they take those 15 minutes for the rest of that hour and they get up from the computer, change their state. They get up, get some water, use the restroom, get a little bit of food, maybe do some burpees, do some kettlebell swings, and then come back in and then they reattack it. And there's something about having that, that idea. Here's the thing. To human beings, without a deadline, time means nothing. So by having this very specific time and saying, you know what, I have 45 minutes to get this done. And then we also know that it's a sprint. So subconsciously, we don't let our mind wander because we know that we only have a certain amount of time and a break is coming up. But it, you can get more done in one 45-minute time like that than you can three hours of just being lackadaisical and not focused on the objective. Mm -hmm. Sounds almost like the Pomodoro technique. Exactly. Pomodoro is 25-5, whatever it is. But the idea is to create this urgency of getting the things done. And by having that, or are you familiar with the Tabata protocol, Steve? No. So the Tabata protocol is you sprint as hard as you possibly can, like you do burpees for as hard as you can for 20 seconds. And then you take 10 seconds off and you do that for four minutes. You do it for eight rounds. And he found out that you could actually get more done from a cardiovascular standpoint, doing that single exercise, that single set for four minutes, then you could for 45 minutes of low intensity duration cardiovascular exercise. So if you want 80-20, there it is. That's one of the things I even give my clients in the morning if they're saying, well, I don't have three hours to do this morning routine like you know Tony Robbins does. I'm like, good, you have 10 minutes. The first four minutes is a Tabata. The next two minutes is bringing your, your heart rate and your breathing back down. The next two minutes is reflection. And then the next minutes after that is figuring out what the day is, get in the shower and go kill it. That's much more efficient than trying to go through and do a bunch of stuff that may not work for you, or frankly, you don't even know why you're doing it. So that's a good way to apply it. So actually, this kind of ties into something that 
I've started practicing recently, and that is systematic abandonment, something that was introduced to me by Peter Drucker. And basically what it talks about is relentlessly reevaluating all of the things you're doing to figure out which are a waste of time. <laughs> because mm -hmm. I have certainly found that I have accumulated a ton of quote unquote best practices over the year that I'm doing because at some point I thought they were a good idea and they'd help me get to the next level. And maybe at some point they actually did, but they're no longer productive now. I mean, it got to the point where I had so many like journaling and to-do and tracking activities on the go that I was probably spending like two hours a day just on that. And like, by you know, by the time you've got all of these like to-do lists and project trackers set up and I've logged all of my calories, like if it's taking up that much time, it's actually pulling me away from the things that really would make a difference. And so continuously trying to get out of doing these things, you know, continuously trying to stop working if it's not helping you is a super, super important thing. Because I think most people, if they really did sit down and critically evaluate their lives, their jobs, you know, they'd probably realize that a lot of what they actually do does not move the needle. And to pull it back to jujitsu, a common jujitsu example, most gyms have this kind of system where they show like a technique of the day, right? You come in and maybe they show you some technique and then they show you another and then they show you another and then you spar and then you go home and you forget everything, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, maybe you had fun and, you know, maybe you burn some calories and maybe if you're lucky, you'll retain one of those things. But I would suspect that for most people, the vast majority of the stuff that they are taught in class is in one ear and out the other. And that raises the question of whether the way that we teach is really productive. Because during the pandemic, I've seen a lot of people who have switched models completely. You know, they've partnered up with a buddy in a COVID bubble and they've, you know, kind of created their own curriculum that is more like a laboratory. And what I'm hearing is a lot of these people are actually learning more doing that than they were training under a so-called instructor. And that raises the question as to whether a lot of the methods that we use to teach people are, are actually ideal or if it's 80% filler. That could absolutely be it. And we also look at, you know, how were instructors taught? We're taught by those above us. And if that's what they were doing, if that's what their instructors did, if this is what, you know, the Gracies did, then we have to do it that way. But again, the individual is much more important than any organized art, irrespective of what that art may be, because the individual is the one who is practicing it. And if we can be aware of that and we can take some of the dogma away from it or some of the, again, the models out of it that may not fit us, then that's that's what's important. Again, what's the difference? If we have an 18-year-old who's a purple belt competing for nationals and we have a 40-year-old gentleman who just came in and is trying to work on losing a little bit of weight, those mindsets are completely different. So we have to find people that are in the similar idea, that are entering a similar arena with that outcome in, in mind. And that will allow us to have much more attention to our intention with everything that we do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, on that topic, something that comes up a lot with grapplers is how do I get the most out of instructional content? We get a lot of questions here on the podcast about, you know, how do I retain information better? How do I best absorb an instruction? How, which instructionals are the best to use? What's the ideal amount? Where do I even start? And there seems to really be in the jujitsu community this quantity over quality approach to instructional material. I mean, there's a huge explosion of knowledge in Brazilian jiu-jitsu at the moment. And because of that, I think that a lot of people feel overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that they need to know. I would posit, though, that 
watching a whole bunch of instructionals doesn't help your game in the least if you fail to retain any of that stuff. You have to retain it. It's better to watch one instructional and retain something than watch 20 instructionals and completely forget it all entirely, right? That's just a waste of your time and your money. So I think that we've got to be much more intentional in terms of how we devote the attention that we want to spend when it comes to learning jujitsu. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this problem of just cognitive overload caused by all of this instructional material. It's so similar to to my profession as well. Everybody thinks that this next $2,000 product or this next live event or this next you know book or whatever it is, is going to be their answer. But uh, again, the knowledge that is acquired but unutilized is the equivalent of ignorance. Mm-hmm. So going through, like you're saying, and this goes back to that push button mentality, our brain as a human being is not designed to know everything that's bad happening in the world all in real time. We just can't process it. Similarly, it's the same thing with martial arts or anything that you want. It's like this buffet. But if you've ever seen a child that lets their eyes get bigger than their stomach and they go to the buffet unsupervised, eventually they're going to get the wrong thing. Eventually they're going to eat too much. Eventually they're going to be sick. Why? Because they literally cannot process and absorb all these things that they want. So again, you're making this comment about what would be better, what would be a better way to do an instructional It depends on the person and what their outcome is, what their desire is. But the main thing is find one thing that you would like to do, watch it, and then try to teach it to somebody else or try to perform it on your partner or trying to find a way to get yourself into it much more deeply than just saying, oh yeah, I saw him do the technique twice. I think I got it. That's not nearly the same as feeling it, as experiencing it, as failing at it so that you can get better in the process. Mm -hmm. And I really love your point about actually teaching it too, right? I think that some very powerful tactics to improve your retention and understanding of a concept. I mean, one, like you said, is to try it, obviously. The other is to experience failure with it, but another is to teach it. And we're sometimes hesitant to do this because a lot of people think, well, I'm not a black belt. I shouldn't be telling anyone anything. It's not really always about that. The act of transmitting your knowledge to someone else helps you understand it better. And in fact, it can really clarify things in a way that just doing does not. This is something that I've actually found on the podcast. I mean, I've been quarantined for over a year now due to COVID. I haven't been training jujitsu really. And what I've actually found is because I took that energy and I focused it instead on this podcast and on how I package and transmit our concepts, I kind of feel actually like I've learned more than I probably would have if I just straight up trained for a year without doing this stuff, right? Like I feel like the learning benefits from having to package up my knowledge have been so great for my own understanding, right? And that doesn't even get into the fact that there's a whole community of people who inquire about our concepts and help build onto them and provide us with new information that we can work into the framework. Just the process of packaging up your info so that you can communicate it to someone else is so powerful for helping you learn how to retain something. So one of the best exercises that I suggest if you're trying to retain something is make your own course. You know, take the stuff and that you've learned and or that you're trying to learn and repackage it up into your own course that you would use to teach someone else. Are you an expert in this stuff? No, maybe not. Do you, do you have any business teaching this to other people when there's better resources? Maybe not, but the process and the practice of teaching helps make you better and get you closer to that expertise. 
It absolutely does. And it makes you internalize the knowledge so that you have to, to be able to give it to other people. And I think that was a great point that you made. I always talk about the gift of adversity. So for you, the gift in that adversity is there is no way that you would have taken an entire year to repackage this material and to create it the way that you have, unless it was a pandemic that forced you to do it. Yet in so doing, you probably leveled up in many ways in your game, in your teaching, in your content, in your material that you never would have any, at any other space, right? Yeah. Sometimes adversity forces you to grow, right? You're confronted with a harsh reality and you have to adapt. And that can be the wake-up call that you need a lot of the time to reassess look for 80-20 wins, conduct a systematic abandonment review, you know, that kind of stuff. It That's a good wake-up call when you, you know, something like the pandemic and you realize, okay, life is going to have to change for a while. How can I make some lemonade out of this? And that's why adversity is not always a bad thing. I mean, in fact, adversity is the key to growth, right? If you want to grow, you need to be confronted with adversity. It's very, very hard to, to grow and become better if you're not constantly being challenged. In fact, it might not even be possible to grow without consistent adversity. No, I mean, adversity is like the gravity. It's a natural law. And and like the law of gravity, it doesn't care about your opinion if you try to lift something heavy. Adversity shows up unannounced at the most inopportune times without apology. It couldn't care less about what you want. It doesn't give a damn about your feelings. And frankly, it doesn't take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. The physical manifestation of, an advers- of adversity is an adversary. And as we know, an adversary is the most honest person you will ever meet because they pull no punches, they give no quarter, and they come at you with no respect. And now you truly get to see what you know, what you don't know, how you react under pressure. And frankly, it's impossible to have true courage without some form of fear, without some form of adversity. So many people right now, especially on social media, False bravado is everywhere because everybody's brave when there is no possibility of adversity or violence. Mm-hmm. But you have to be very, very honest with yourself. And until you've been in these positions, until you put yourself with a person who is better than you on the mat, it's impossible to get better. It's impossible to know what you're really made out of. And the scary thing is you want to figure that out now before you're in a big business deal or before you have to defend yourself or somebody else who can't defend themselves in a fight. You don't have the luxury of being philosophical in the heat of battle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And interestingly, this is something that I've started to do on the podcast here is to kind of assess eight, from an 80-20 standpoint, you know, and this ties into your statement about social media, where I should really focus my attention. Because it is very, very attractive to feel like, oh, I should be on there just posting stuff out into the blue and into the ether, but it isn't really productive to do that. And my focus has been on identifying the 20% of the people who listen to the show who want to participate and give back and engage. There's a ton of people out there listening to this right now who presumably are getting a lot of value out of this podcast, but they don't write in, you know, they don't contribute back. It's just a one-way relationship. I'm grateful for anyone who will spend the time and attention to listen to us, but my focus right now is on the 20% who give back, right? So the people who support us on our Patreon, the people in our Discord chat, the people who mail in and contribute their ideas, those are my focus. And that kind of laser focus has really helped me grow this thing as a product rather than just trying to please everybody out there, even if they're not contributing back to the process. And, and that's what it is. The the human animal, we don't respect what we don't pay for in some capacity. So that payment can be, like you said, Patreon. That can be 
supporting social media, that can be a comment, that can be writing in, that can be supporting you in other capacities. But that's when we get the most out of it. When there's so much free stuff that's out there, a lot of times, like you said, we don't internalize it. So if you enjoyed the content that he's that Steve's putting up that with the BJJ mental models, continue to just absorb all that. Go back to all the other podcasts, see the other things they have to offer. Because if you enjoy this, chances are this is a good indication. This is the the tugging on the the sweater that helps you kind of come back to these other things that really resonate with you. But again, social media, it it's fine for an extent. Frankly, the clients that I work with didn't find me on social media. They sought me out from the book or the TEDx or they heard about me in the podcast. But in the end, it's nice to have presence. But you have to understand, just like we were mentioning this whole time about AD20, do I want to get good at getting a bunch of people on social media? Or do I want to get good at helping clients change their lives and their businesses? Mm-hmm. For me, it's about the latter of those two. I don't care about looking like a rock star on social media. And frankly, if I wanted to do that, I could just spend money and have a bunch of people make me look like I'm running for president all the time. And I don't have time for that in my life. That's not my priority. Yeah. And incidentally, that's kind of the formula that we've landed on is I spend maybe 20% of our time doing promotional stuff. And the other 80% of the time is on helping people actually get better if I can, right? On building relationships with listeners, on building our community, on Discord, on creating premium content, on making this podcast. Like that's that's my focus. And social media, I think it kind of takes an outsized place of importance in a lot of our business game plans. Like we think it's more important than it is. I've been shocked as I've, you know, moved up the ladder and I deal more with like really like world-class business leaders. I've been shocked at how low profile they are on social media. You know, these are not, these are not people like Elon Musk with, you know, a hundred million followers or, you know, a lot of these people have as many followers as my dad. You wouldn't even know they're anybody unless you know the people who know those people. Right. So it's a, it's a good example of how when you prioritize properly, a lot of the time you might be going against the grain of what people think really someone in your role should be doing, but you know, everyone's path is different and identifying what the true priorities are. That's really the the key to success. And I guess on that note, I would ask you, you know, we've talked a lot about the 80, 20 rule here. What are some practices for applying this in your daily life? You know, for just Joe Average, how would you suggest that as a step one, they start using the 80-20 rule in practice to reevaluate their life? Yeah. A a very simple question that anybody can ask themselves right now is this, because most high performers are always wanting to push themselves harder. But this is the question that I would posit to anybody that was within the sound of my voice right now. Instead of asking yourself, am I pushing hard enough? Ask yourself, am I doing this for the right reason? What this does is this forces you to actually look at everything you're doing, itemize every activity that you have, and then realize, man, a lot of that I was wasting. A lot of that's really not helping me move the needle. A lot of that is not helping me get to this next place. And that's why it's so important to be very honest. We were talking earlier about reevaluating. I evaluate my time every two hours. So I look back two hours ago and look at what's transpired since then and ask myself right now, is what I did getting me closer or further away from what I was supposed to be doing? If it didn't, I reevaluate and I try to hack away the inessentials, as Bruce Lee said. That's the way I live my life. And frankly, the way I coach is the same way that I did as a martial arts instructor. Very honest, very real. I teach from a place of compassion and empathy, but I kick you in the ass and I call you on your bullshit when you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And that's what makes a good instructor, a good Sifu, a good Guru, 
a good professor, and by applying that to everybody else in their business, applying that with the 80-20 rule and keeping it simple, now they can execute as opposed to getting caught up in all the sexiness of making it more complex than what it really needs to be. Exactly. And on the topic of assessing the last two hours or whatever time window you choose to use for personal reflection, it's also, I think, important to clarify that there is a thing called false productivity, right? Just because you've checked off all the boxes on your to-do list today, that doesn't necessarily mean it was actually time well spent, right? I mean, if your day involves, you know, going through and making sure all your emails are answered or, you know, reorganizing files on your desktop or that kind of stuff. I mean, maybe that is actually the stuff that'll move the needle for you. I'm not going to say it's not. It's This is a very personal thing. But for most people, I would venture to guess that, you know, things like getting your email all done by the end of the day, that's kind of a false goal. <laughs> you know, you can do that and it might feel good because you can feel like you've accomplished something, but have you really, you know, a year from now is the fact that you answered all of your email going to be the thing that moves the needle, right? And this is actually something that I think from an 80-20 standpoint, we need to be much better at in the business world. And that is realigning expectations about things like email. We have this expectation now where if I send you an email or a Slack message, there is an expectation that I will get a response. And that's bullshit, right? No one should be able to, I don't even care if it's your boss, right? No one should be able to create an expectation that you're there at their beck and call just to answer emails and stuff. And I have... I have flat out had people who have, you know, they, they get mad when you don't answer them as quickly as they would like, right? Like they, there's this expectation that if you message me, that means my phone should buzz and I should get back to you within 30 minutes and the other person feels like they have the right to be angry about it if they don't. I've started getting quite militant about this now and I will just flat out tell people, you know, <laughs> if it's a person that I... I know they're waiting on me. I might respond to their email and just say, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Like it's, Hey, I'm sorry. It's not that I don't like you. It's not that I don't care about your success, but it's just that, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, the default expectation for something like email or Slack messages, the default expectation should be, I'm not going to respond right? The default expectation should not be, I am entitled to a response because that just allows everyone on a team to basically do a denial of service attack on everyone else on the team where just no one is getting anything done because now there's this perpetual flow of emails and Slack messages that are monopolizing everyone's time. That's exactly it. And I think you probably know, I, you know, we've messaged a few times back and forth, even today, and my phone is on airplane mode and while my email notifications are off while I'm working on what I'm working on. So I'm doing that 45 minute sprint. And then when I click back on, it's like, I should be getting ready for this. That's when I get back in there and I engage in the things that are what the priority is. So again, going back and reevaluating those two hours, or again, it is nice to be able for some people to have a list of a bunch of shit that they want to get done. But again, if those things aren't even worth doing in the first place, it doesn't matter how efficiently you do them. The idea is to put as few important things on that priority list as you can and get those done so that when you're done with those things, the rest of your day, no matter what else happens, you've already won. That's the goal. Yeah. I I think a big part of operational and process excellence comes down to clear priorities. And almost everyone screws this up, honestly. Like, it sounds like it should be so easy to do this. But once you start introducing things like team dynamics, prioritization gets very challenging. And a challenge that I think many of us have experienced on the job is conflicting number one priorities, right? This happens all the time where someone will ask you to do five different things and you'll say, which is 
priority number one. And they'll come back and say something to the effect of, they're all number one priorities. They're all urgent, <laughs> right? I've seen this so many times. And my answer to this, and it maybe isn't the best way to make friends, but it is the best way to get results, is to basically say what you said earlier, which is if everything is number one priority, then there is no number one priority. Like, And sometimes people will come back and they'll say things like, oh, well, we can get all of these five items done if you give this task to Bob and this task to Alice and this ta task to Jonathan. And my response to that is, that's not your job to figure out. You know, you're asking me to take on a bunch of extra work here. You need to tell me what is priority. If you can't tell me what your priorities are, then I can't be expected to act on them, right? Like if, if you are ever in the process of creating work for someone else, you should be obligated to clarify for them what those priorities are. Because if you can't in your own head say what what is actually important what business do you have telling other people what work they should do that's exactly it and that's the sign of a person who isn't sure what they need done so they want everything done to make sure that all their bases are covered exactly and this is why it's so important for the ceo to have culture a vision and to have core values that everybody's on board with because when the ceo can express efficiently effectively clearly where they're trying to go, what they're trying to do. And I, I understand that that may be for like the 200 employees and maybe you have like C-suite executives or senior management teams where you have more of a hands-on approach. But even within the confines of that, you should say, listen, this is our quarter. This is where we're at. This is where we want to go. This is our pipeline. This is what we're hoping to acquire. These are the things that we're working on. By having that, you default to that higher idea of these are our ethos, our beliefs, our core values. So if you have an employee who's not sure what to do and your core value Number one is the customer. We go above and beyond for them. Now they can default to that. So these are instructions that they have sort of printed on their psyche. So they don't need to ask you, hey, should I, this customer is being a pain in the ass. Do I go above and beyond and try to over deliver? Or do I just be really snippy with them and try to get them off the phone as quickly as possible? You shouldn't have to tell them what to do. That should already be ingrained in them. That should be being reinforced. You as a leader should be getting sick of telling people why you guys are doing what you're doing, what the vision is, what the mission is, and why it's so important. Yeah. Nothing drives me crazier than when people preach about what their core values are, but they don't ever consider those core values when it comes to decision-making. And I would suspect most companies are terribly guilty of this, where they'll put all sorts of things on their wall about how, you know, our core value is team first, people first. We love our team. We love our customer. But when push comes to shove, there's never a conversation about how those values actually apply in practice, right? When you're, you know, when you have to make difficult decisions about your team, no one ever actually stops and says, well, what about our core values? They're just window dressing. And to be effective, in your decision-making, you need to have your core values be a fundamental part of every decision that you make. And that's something that is actionable for jujitsu grapplers as well, for gym owners, for team builders, understanding why you're doing this, because that should always be a consideration for really any decision you make. And if you make that a practice, then it actually becomes easy to make decisions quicker. Because if you know what your core values are and they're ingrained in your decision-making process, it's like having a lot of mental models. You have tools right there that help you easily evaluate a decision as a yes or a no. And that actually makes it easier to say no. Like a, the 80-20 rule is all about 
saying no to the things that aren't important. So if you're aligned on your core values, then it's very easy to look at an idea and say, that's a no, that's not one of my core values. And something like that is just as applicable in terms of jujitsu. I've said on the podcast before that in terms of my, I guess my goals in jujitsu, you know, I have a very particular type of game that I want to play. I want to make sure that what I'm doing is just as applicable in sparring as it would be in self-defense. I want to make sure that it works against an opponent of really any size or body type. And I want to make sure I can do it safely without risking significant injury to myself. And so that's the lens through which I evaluate every single technique, right? If someone comes to me with the technique and I can immediately tell that like this is, you know, this technique will not scale up if I'm fighting someone that's 100 pounds heavier than me. I'm just less interested in spending my time on that technique than something that I know is exactly what I'm looking for out of jujitsu. And again, that comes from your self-knowledge, right? That comes from your self-understanding. You have a certain idea of what you want while somebody else may not, or somebody else may want somebody else's why. They may be thinking specifically as a competitor or specifically gi, or like you were saying, specifically a person who's in their weight division. So we have to understand what those confines are and even with the idea of, of core values as a leader, even in a school, if you have core values up on your wall, those core values should be the way that you go ahead and correct people's behavior. If you have a person who has a client and they haven't done a very good job with them and one of our core values is go above and beyond for that client, you can ask them, it's like, okay, on core value of this, do you think that you did that? Because now what you're doing is you're teaching them how to think. You're giving them the process. You're giving them the protocols. You're giving them the standard operating procedures so that they can drop that down menu in their mind and say, okay, last time Marcus said, this is this core value. Does this apply to it? Yes or no? So on the core value in your school, if you say that everybody's welcome and that there's no mat bullies, and the first thing that happens is when I walk in that school, I feel like everybody's trying to kill me and they're trying to rip my head off. You know, core values are pretty, but they may not necessarily be what's going on. If you don't live them, they don't mean anything. Words are empty. Actions are the truth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, I think a difference between core values and core marketing, right? Oh my God, yeah. And the reality is a, a lot of people's core values, they they exist solely on the wall where they're posted up for everyone to see. But like you said, true core values are actionable and part of the decision-making process, right? Whenever a key decision is being made, the first question should be, well, let's look at the core values. What do they tell us to do here, right? That kind of principled thinking is such an effective decision-making tool. I guess one last thing I'd like to maybe put in front of you, do you have any good examples in your life of the 80-20 rule in action? Any situations where you applied this technique and it really moved the needle for you? I do. I'll give you the big one. So for those of you that don't know my background, when I was preparing to deploy with the light infantry at 10th Mountain Light Infantry Division, I suffered a severe spinal injury that left me paralyzed from the neck down. I joined the military at 38. And so this injury happened to me when I was 40. So at 40 years old, when everybody else is looking back on their life and their family and their marriage and their business and their 401k and their cars, I woke up broke, divorced, bedridden, and paralyzed, trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life? So when I was in that place and I was paralyzed and I was told that I would never walk again, I was suicidal, but I couldn't even act on it because of my physicality, because I was still paralyzed from the neck down, even after the operation. I died on the operating table twice and they said that, listen, the good news is you get to live to tell the tale. The bad news is this is what you're left with. So sitting in a bed, having no other option other than to look back on my life, look back on regrets, look back on all the time that I had wasted, 
That was my opportunity to truly 80-20 everything. And the 80-20 for me came down to, I had no idea what my purpose was. I had no idea what I even believed in. Frankly, I didn't even know what I wanted. I just was going around and allowing happenstance to push me and let me meander like I was this rudderless ship in, in the storm. But when I had the opportunity to actually walk again and slowly recover, it forced me to come through and truly live 80-20. It forced me to truly live this idea of living with urgency. It truly took my death to make me begin to live my life. So that was the opportunity for me to 80-20 everything. Again, to not give a shit about people's opinions. If people told me I was crazy for doing something, that was the indication in my mind that I was going in the right direction. So that's the way I've lived my life ever since then. That's why I wrote my book. That's where I got my TEDx. That's where my coaching came. And I have just followed that true north that has been my litmus test for everything else that I do. And I haven't looked back. And by doing that, that's allowed me to stay true to what's truly my purpose. And this is what's allowed me to change the lives of the people that have changed my life. Again, like you were mentioning, I don't have hundreds of millions of followers, but if I did, I probably still wouldn't be getting the kind of impact I would if I had 100,000 followers that truly put what I am teaching them into action. Tom Bilyeu says that only 2% of people in your audience will legitimately put whatever you teach them into play. But even if that's the case, then I still try to give everything that I can to that 2% to make them make an impact on those around them. And that changes the world slowly but surely. Wow, that's that's quite a story, man. I I actually had no idea. Thank you so much for sharing that. If people want to learn more about this, I mean, you've mentioned your book and your, your TEDx, and I believe you're also a podcaster as well. Where can people check out your stuff? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, TEDx is for free. You can find it. It's just put in The Gift of Adversity, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. You can find it on YouTube. The book is called The Gift of Adversity, Overcoming Paralysis and Pain to Find Purpose. And then my podcast is called Octanon Verba, which is Latin for deeds and not words. So what I have found, so many people will sit here and they'll, they'll have this place where they say, I don't know what to do next. And the answer for everybody in that question is this. The answer that you're looking for is in the adversity that you are currently avoiding. So if you are trying to work on your business and you can't get sales leads, chances are you're not putting enough time or not doing the 80-20 on that. If you're trying to get better in jujitsu, but you're complaining that there's not enough upper belts or people that are your size or whatever, you're BSing yourself. You're trying to find an excuse and you're trying to corroborate that to justify your mediocrity. What I'm trying to tell you is if you live your life like you're dying, because guess what? If you can hear me, you are. If you have that sort of urgency, it will make everything else that you have, have much more quality and it will help you choose with this 80-20 mentality. So now if there's some conversation that you shouldn't be having, you can just nix that. If it's a person that you really don't want to spend time with, that's going to drain you instead of help you raise up. That's what you have to think about. And by having that sort of real intentional ideal, it will change everything in your life. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much. And thank you to everyone for listening and spending time with us. If you want to be one of the 20% that that I really care about, then you can join us on Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash models. That's the best way to get access to the premium product here at BJJ Mental Models. The podcast is really just the tip of the spear. We offer a ton of premium content as well as our awesome Discord, which I highly recommend you become a part of. You also get the ability to send your videos to us 
for review. We'll take a look and we'll break down your techniques based on the concepts that we talk about here on the show. So again, please do consider supporting us if you haven't already, patreon.com slash models. You can, of course, also go to the Mothership website, bjjmentalmodels.com. That's where you can contact us. And that's also where we have an online database of all of the concepts that we talk about here on the show. Marcus, amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it. I always love having other podcasters on. I feel like there's like a podcast cinematic universe and we're doing a big crossover. You know, it's like I'm Spider-Man and you're Wolverine and you're coming on my podcast. It's super duper cool. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, brother. I hope that we gave some nuggets out there and I hope that some of this stuff is some of the 2% out there will actually put it into play. Absolutely. And to all the listeners, once again, thanks for your time and attention. Talk to you guys next week. 